Well, we're going to talk this time about faith, and you know the classic definition of faith in Hebrews 11, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I take that to mean that we are to adopt the perspective of God. Why I say that is because we're we're told by, by Paul in Romans that God speaks about things which are not as if they are. He is so sure that what he has said is going to come to pass, that his purpose will stand true and will ultimately happen, that he, as far as he is concerned, has a different view of time to that which we have. So, for example, God can speak about Abraham as if he is a father of many nations, when in fact Abraham is there impotent uh, at the time that that, uh, God said that and his wife is too old to have children, humanly speaking. And so faith is having that kind of perspective. And when you go with that line of reasoning, you come to see, I think, that faith is therefore not the idea that if I ask God for something, it must happen. No, faith is looking at the things which God has said will happen and will come to pass, and what is his desire, what is his will, his passion, his intention, and if we, as it were, merge ourselves, our will, with his will, then whatever we are asking, whatever we are approaching in faith, is in fact what he wants. We have said in the earlier study on on prayer that we're told in, uh, in John 15 that if the Lord's words abide in us, then we will ask whatever we will, and we will get it. And yet, John, writing later in his, in his letters, said that if we ask anything according to the will of God, we get it. But if the, the words of the Lord Jesus abide in us, then we ask whatever we will, whatever we want, and we get it. Because our will, our spirit, if you like, has become merged and is in sync with that of God. And therefore, we should be confident that whatever we ask, we will receive of him because we are asking for the right things from the right motives. And so this is why the, the old idea of, uh, you know, let me pray for anything or I need money. Oh God, you know, like I used to do when I was a little kid, uh, shut my eyes real, real tight and, and say, you know, God, make it so that next time I open my eyes, there will be a, a five pound note on the floor. And there's no five-pound note there. And I tell you, I believed. Man, I, I believed. But it didn't happen. Why? Because that is not praying according to the will of God. That is not adopting the perspective of God. It's like, again, when I was a little kid, walking up to a lamppost and saying, I command you in the name of Jesus to fall over. Well, I didn't think where the lamppost was going to fall over. Uh, but the falling over of a lamppost in a street in, in South London where I grew up is not... It is not necessarily the will of God. There was no sense of what's my motive for asking for this, and so it doesn't happen. And things, unfortunately, don't radically change as we get older. The whole idea of faith, as I see it, is asking for things according to God's will and being convinced that we are on the right track. And this is where the Bible comes into it. Because the revealed will of God is in the Bible. It's not as simple as, well, if you read the Bible every day, your prayers somehow magically come true. Not at all. 
if we read the Bible every day, we are exposed to the mind and the thinking and the will of God, and therefore things start to happen right, because we're asking for the right things from the right motives. And so the experience of answered prayer, the experience of faith being rewarded, gets better as time goes on. Now, I want to look at one example of faith, and it's the example of Hezekiah. And we read uh, 2 Kings 18, and I would draw your attention there to verse 5. 2 Kings 18, verse 5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. Now, this idea of there was none like him amongst all the kings, neither before nor after, this is what we could call a rubric. This is a little phrase in God's estimation of a person that occurs in a number of the accounts of the kings. So, uh, for example, it talks about Josiah, and it says that there was nobody like him who was obedient amongst all the kings before nor after. With Hezekiah, it says there was no one, no one like him who trusted, who had faith in, in God. And yet, with Hezekiah, you think, well, why was this man picked out for that wonderful comment from God? You know, when we read the lives of these guys in the record, we're just getting a few cameos, a few snapshots of moments in their lives. Yeah, Hezekiah reigned for, let's say, 25 years, but we're just given a few snapshots from his life. And that's why the, these little sort of summary comments, God's opinion overall of a person, are so important. So God's overall opinion of Hezekiah was that he was the greatest of all the kings of Judah for faith, even greater than David, actually. And yet, when you read the account of, of Hezekiah's life and the few cameos that we have of things that happened, you would not actually necessarily say that. Okay, as we'll see later, his faith at the time when Jerusalem is surrounded there by, by the Assyrians and his calm faith that God will deliver us, that's wonderful. But there's a whole load of other examples in his life where actually he was not so strong in his faith. And here in 2 Kings 18, I think we have an example of that. He starts off making all these reforms and all very wonderful. And then we're told that uh, he, verse 7, he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. But then he says to the king of Assyria in verse 14, I have sinned, I have offended. Go away from me, I'll pay you whatever you want. And he takes the gold, a symbol of faith, off from the temple and he gives it to, to the king of Assyria. Now, all that seems a lack of faith. And incidentally, when he says to the king of Assyria, I have offended, leave me alone, go back from me, return from me. Don't punish me as you, as you threatened. This is the sort of language you find in the Bible used about God, that that should be our attitude to God. I have sinned against you, please uh, forgive me, uh, I will do what you say from now on, please don't punish me as you threatened. This, these very same words in the Hebrew are used a number of times about a person's relationship to God. And so Hezekiah so had a blip on the screen in his faith that he, he treats the king of Assyria as if he's God. 
His faith, if you like, is in the king of Assyria as God rather than in the invisible God of Israel. And so he takes upon himself a false guilt. He says, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. I'll now be obedient, be, uh, obedient to you. Do whatever you say. Now, there's true guilt. And the true guilt that we should take is when we have sinned, when we have done as we know what God does not wish us to do, when we have broken his word. But there's also false guilt, whereby somebody can feel guilty about having done something, when actually they shouldn't. And trying to go into that in a bit more detail, effectively it's because we've made that person who is putting that false guilt on us effectively in the place of God. It's actually our faith in God that has been compromised. Because if we truly believe that there is one God and I believe in him, in this one God of Israel, then our conscience is to him and not to anybody else. Our bad conscience should come if we have done what is wrong by, by God's book, but not if we are told we're no good by somebody else, or if we are told that, that, we're this, that, and the other, but by them. If we do not accept them as God, then their opinion of us should not lead to any false guilt. And I think that because Hezekiah's faith blipped at this moment, he ran into that, uh, into that mistake. And even worse, it seems that he also, at that time, tried to make some deal with Egypt. Because when uh, Rabshakeh comes and, and starts shouting outside the walls of Jerusalem, he says, well, uh, what are you trusting in this guy Hezekiah for? He, he's completely mixed up kid, because uh, for one thing, he, he's just depending on words and ideas. He's got no army behind him, really, to fight us with. And then he's trusting upon this bruised reed, as he called it, Egypt. And then he says, well, then he's telling you to trust in God. He's mixed up, this guy. So Hezekiah had failed. He'd made this bargain with Assyria, and that went wrong, and he'd gone to Egypt. All this uh, told very clearly by Isaiah at the very time, or in the time of Hezekiah, not to trust in Egypt. But he had done that. And then at the time of this invasion, he gets chronically sick. You can work that out because the invasion comes in the uh, 14th year of his, uh, of his reign. And he reigns 29 years, it says in chapter 18, verse 2. He reigned 29 years, the invasion came in the 14th year of his reign, and then when he's cured of his sickness, he's given another 15 years. So then the sickness at which time he was given another 15 years, was at the same time as the invasion. So then he had all these difficulties coming upon him at the same time, and uh, he didn't show faith initially at, at that time. Um, but also when he was sick, I also find it rather difficult to understand his attitude there as being very faithful, because he goes to Isaiah and he cries to God, etc., and Isaiah comes with a message from the Lord and says, you're going to be cured. And he says, well, how do I know this? How do I know that God is going to cure me and that one day I will go again into the house of the Lord? Give me a sign. He asks for a sign. Now, pretty well every time in the Bible when people ask for a sign, I wouldn't say it's a sin, but I would say it is certainly a confession of the weakness of their faith. 
And Jesus was quite tough on that and said, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Uh, you've got Gideon, etc. All of this is, let's say, a weakness in faith. And then Isaiah says, well, okay, yeah, the Lord agreed. He's going to give you a sign. Do you want the shadow on your sundial to go down by 15 degrees or, or go forward? And he said, well, it's an easy thing for the, uh, the thing to go forward. Let it go, let it go back. Well, that's a bit rude almost to God. Uh, like, well, that's a bit too easy for God to do that. Like, let's make it really hard for God to give me the sign. And by saying that, he's really saying it's really hard to convince me. So his faith was not at all at the best. And yet there's this, this verse that says, rather the summary of his reign, 18 verse 5, that his faith in the Lord God of Israel was like nobody before nor after amongst the kings of Judah. And, you know, that includes David. Now, that... That's an amazing statement to make when there's all this evidence that his, his faith was pretty weak at around the, the 14th year of his reign. And yet it says his faith generally was the best that anyone had had. What's the conclusion you take from that? That it's through the valleys in our faith that we actually develop. That everything to some degree goes in cycles and we are actually given or develop, let's say, a stronger faith through our failures. And that's a wonderful thing with God, that when somebody messes up, and I think Hezekiah did in these incidents, uh, God doesn't turn away in disgust and walk away like we tend to when people in our lives mess up. He doesn't do that. He hangs in with him as he's hung in with with millions of people uh, throughout history and brings them through those failures in faith to a stronger faith, or at least that is God's intention. And so, don't give up if you have failed in your faith, because Hezekiah also did, but he ended up with this wonderful accolade from God himself, that he had the best faith, strongest faith of of all the, the kings of Judah. So then, Let's uh, more positively then look at what it meant to Hezekiah to have faith. Well, you can learn something of his faith from Rabshakeh's mocking of him. He says to the the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, chapter 18, verse 30, Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. And he keeps going on about, have any of the other nations been delivered by their gods? The word deliver was the key word in Hezekiah's let's trust in God campaign. Because Rabshaki keeps on using this word deliver. Hezekiah says, your God is going to deliver you, deliver you. But none of the other gods have delivered their nations from us, the Assyrians. So where does Hezekiah get this idea then of God is going to deliver us? Well, I suggest it's from Isaiah 31, verse 5, where Isaiah had prophesied at the time of Hezekiah, this was uh, contemporary with him, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts, as a phrase normally used about the angels, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem, he will deliver it. And so Hezekiah picked that one verse and said, God said he will deliver us. And so he says, let's trust in God, he will deliver us. So 
Maybe that's a pattern for us. I, I know it's dangerous to max out on just one verse of the Bible. You've got to take the, the whole context. But it's not a bad thing. If you find a verse that absolutely speaks to your situation and you cling on to it. And I think Isaiah 31 verse 5 was the verse that Hezekiah clung on to. He keeps on. God will deliver us. He said so. And I really suggest that the more we are familiar with Scripture, the more we are likely, as it were, to think of a verse, well, that's, that's for me, in my situation, just as I think the Lord Jesus did when he was in the wilderness. There he was, you know, 40 days, tempted, in the desert, no food, and of course his mind was back with Israel, 40 years in the wilderness, tempted, no food, God provided, etc. That's why the three... Bible verses that he quotes to rebuff the temptations are all out of Deuteronomy, actually clustered together between Deuteronomy 6 and 8. Because he saw that scripture talking to him. And so it's not, as I say, as simple as you read the Bible, you'll get faith. That's too primitive and simplistic an equation. But the more we are familiar with God's word, the more his word will speak to us relevantly. Now, Isaiah 31.5 says that Yahweh of hosts, that is of angels, will deliver us. And it's interesting that the deliverance came from an angel going out into the camp and, of the Assyrians and, and killing them all. But there's something more with the, these, uh, this connection with the, the angels. 2 Kings uh, 19, verse 15, we're told that uh, Hezekiah comes before the Lord and he puts the, the whole letter that's been written telling him that, that God's not going to deliver him uh, and he puts it, he spreads it before the Lord and that's of course what we should do not using prayer or our faith in God as a kind of insurance policy that we got a problem so we try to deal with it in our own strength with our own money, with our own health with uh, medical expertise or whatever but well, if that don't work, okay, let's make an insurance policy and it's called faith in God. No, the first port of call is to be God and all the rest of it is just the, the human trappings as it were. You know, when, when Hezekiah is faced with the reality of the problem, he, the beginning of the chapter, 19 verse 1, he goes into the house of the Lord, that just as, as we should do. But anyway, he, in verse 15, he he prays to God and says, O Lord God of Israel, who dwells between the cherubims, you are the God, etc. Please uh, open your eyes. And the angels are the eyes of the Lord running to and fro in the earth. He says, open your eyes. Hear the words of Sennacherib. So then he spreads this letter before the Lord. Verse 14. And he says, you're the God who dwells between the cherubim. Now, when we read in verse 14 that he spread or spread out the letter before the Lord, that is the same word used about how the cherubim spread out their wings over the ark. And I suggest you could circle in your Bible 19 verse 14, spread, and just scribble down there, spread out, and put SW, or same word, Exodus 25, 20, Exodus 37.9, where the cherubim spread out their wings. And he then says, God, you dwell between the cherubim. 
And I wonder if, in fact, when he goes into the house of the Lord, he does what I guess he shouldn't have done, but he goes right up to the ark and he puts the letter actually on the mercy seat where the blood of the atonement was, was splattered once, uh, once a year at the Day of Atonement on that gold lid of the ark. Above, above that, go- that lid of the ark were, were like the, uh, the wings of the cherubim spread out. And he puts the letter beneath those wings and says, God, you dwell above these cherubim. Please see this letter. Open your eyes, your angelic eyes, and see. And God responds, an angel is sent forth and kills all the Assyrians. And so, one thing that helps our sense of faith in prayer, I think, is that our prayer actually comes before the presence of God. There's quite a a lot of Bible teaching about the counsel of God, that God is there, as it were, enthroned with angels on the right hand, on the left hand, and he sends his angels out in response to human prayer. You see a lot of that in Revelation, where the incense, which is prayer, ascends up, and what happens? Once it gets there, God sends an angel. If you just look, you're forgetting about all the symbolism there in Revelation, but you just uh, see the outline picture, incense ascends, angels are sent. Angels run here, run there, doing things. That is the power of human prayer, that a guy standing at a bus stop in a city like Riga or wherever you are, praying to God, even with his eyes open, can actually lead to God sending angels running around the place. And if you ask the childish question, sort of like, why is God so far away? Why is heaven so far away? Why doesn't God just live one kilometer above the earth's surface and we like dealing with him? Why does he have to be so far away with a whole stack of uninhabited planets whizzing around between us and him? Why the huge size of it? And maybe one simple answer to that is to just show us the vastness of his love and involvement with us. That from such a geographical distance, he will send his angels to do things here on earth because you and I believe that he will do that. So understanding, or not understanding, but perceiving to some extent the mechanics, if you like, of what goes on when we pray in faith well, what happens? It's not just auto-suggestion. God doesn't say, abracadabra, let this happen. He actually is sending angels, and they're running around organizing the answer to our prayers. And I suggest that perceiving that will help us to, to have the faith in prayer that Hezekiah had. And it must have been a pretty amazing uh, thing, because people from all around the place came and congratulated Hezekiah. They'd all heard the story. The faith that he had in his God was absolutely incredible, even to the Gentile world. And so, it comes down also to motives. 2 Kings 19, verse 19, Save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. His motive was not just, I don't want to die, so get me out of this, and all right, if Israel gets saved as well, or rather Jerusalem gets saved, that's great. No. Save us, not just me, save us, 
so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And the prayer was answered, and yes, they did, because they were so amazed by this guy's faith in his God that they came to Jerusalem with all their presents to like congratulate him. It's quite unusual. Two uh, nations have a war with each other, and uh, there's some amazing miracle done. I, I mean, why would you, you go and send expensive presents, hugely expensive presents, it seems, uh, to congratulate the person who trusted in their God. People were really impressed by this. So his motive was that others might know the truth of God. And that's actually alluded to in, by Jesus, John 17, verse 23. He says, likewise, basically, he wants to overcome, to win the battle of the cross, that the world may know. And that's the same thing there, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are, are God alone. So if our motives are right... For the glorification of God's name, that is all the characteristics that make up the essence of God, then we can be sure that our prayers will be heard. And God saw Hezekiah's faith so positively, because he says in 2 Kings 19 verse 21, the virgin daughter of Zion, that is the, the faithful remnant led by Hezekiah in Jerusalem, he says, they've despised Assyria. They've laughed her to scorn. They've wagged her head at Assyria. As if Hezekiah was so confident of victory that he had all the emotions that go with someone who has won a, a, a complete victory. He says, God says that Hezekiah had laughed Assyria to scorn. doesn't seem like that. He seems a worried, desperate man as he's praying to God. But God recognized that actually Hezekiah was so confident that God will deliver us because he has said so, and this is to the glory of his name, that it was like him laughing Assyria to, to scorn. And so this, I think, is a real challenge to, to us. We need to, to think what we pray for because you actually might get it. I mean by that, if you are sure that your motives are right, that you've thought this matter out, whatever you're asking for, it will happen. Now, I know that we don't believe in miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, pulling rabbits out of, out of sleeves and all, out of boxes and all this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, that's a different thing. That's a different uh, channel, if you like, that God, it seems, was used in the first century but not using today. Okay, but that does not mean that God is not active in answering human prayer. And so I set you the challenge to work out something in your life that you would desperately love to see so, and work out why you want that, and don't, don't say Oh, I could do with money. Yeah, it is a usual thing these days, or prosperity gospel and all that stuff. Um, work out what you want for God's glory and how this would glorify God. Look at the biblical precedent. And if that precedent is right, then believe that this will happen and have the attitude of Hezekiah whereby he could openly say to, to his people, the Lord will deliver us, and 
In other words, don't make it just so secret. Be quite open about it, that I'm praying for this and I believe that this will happen. Because faith, if it's real faith, uh, is going to be shown publicly. Uh, Faith also without works is dead. You've got to do your, your human bit. And uh, even to the extent like Hezekiah is described there as despising Assyria, laughing her to scorn, wagging his head at her, that he's so confident that it's going to happen, that he has all the emotions that go with victory. So in our self-talk, and we all talk to ourselves, I used to think that I was crazy because I talked to myself and I realized that everybody does it and that's that's part of being human. In our self-talk, in our fantasy, and we all have fantasy. You know, you just stand at a bus stop or walking down the street or driving your car, whatever you're doing. You can have, be imagining something. How it would be if this were the case. Or if such and such were the case. I would be there saying this or saying that. Okay, in those fantasies, as I call them, in those imaginations, those imaginary conversations that we have with others and with ourselves, In those, try to make a conscious effort to imagine yourself in a situation where you've prayed for this and it has happened. And it has happened. I don't consider that I have a huge faith. I'm sorry to say that. I'm giving you the the theory. But something has happened today. Well, late last night, in fact which uh, is something like this. There is a woman that I met, a businesswoman. A woman uh, on first sight and first blush, a woman of the world. And I never have much hope that, that you can convert hard, secular people to the gospel. Anyway, about two months ago, I happened to give her a Bible basics. In fact, I gave her two. I said, well, you like to give one of these to your clients. She was telling me one of her clients had... Uh, certain uh, problems spiritually, and I said, well, give him this, this book. And I purposely gave her two. I said, there you go, you might like to read it. And uh, I don't know why, I just thought this person really could believe, and, and how great it would be if this person would come to, to God and to the Lord Jesus and to his truth. And so I talked to Cindy about it, and... Uh, I said, well, I, because she's uh, well, quite debonair woman, I said, I think we, we better get her. She would, I could imagine her being baptized in a white gown. So I went to the supermarket and I bought a white gown, baptism gown. And uh, I prayed about this. Uh, I've, maybe God was making me pray because I, I, I was really praying about this and thinking how great it would be. And I thought of the place where I could just see her being baptized. In my little you know, imaginary fantasies like we all have, imaginations, imaginary worlds. And a uh, stranger set of circumstances arose where she had contact with the two of our brethren for a whole day in the course of her professional work. And I met her afterwards, and I prayed, and I took a deep breath, and I said, uh, what do you think about being baptized? And she looked me straight in the eye, and she said, I would love to be. So we had a discussion, a kind of interview. Well, it was, for about two hours. I went through everything. This woman had gone right through Bible basics. She, she understood. 
And tomorrow, God willing, we're going to go baptize her. And I have that baptismal gown thing that I bought. It's in the back of my car, just out of the back of this hall. And yes, the place where I thought to baptize her, I told her this, and she said, yeah, that'll be great. So Cindy and I are going to go and baptize her, God willing, tomorrow. Now, I do not say that I have such great faith. But I was thinking, well, this is the will of God, that this woman and every woman and man on this earth should come to believe. That is God's will. And I thought, if, if she of all people were to believe, then I could see this, that, the other, working out to God's glory in her life and in the life, lives of people uh, connected with her. And, well, many times I did not have faith, unfortunately, but, but in this matter I did. And I feel I'm on the cusp of, uh, of a wave of, of faith in this, that now I see, now I see how it should be. And I, yes, I was imagining the angels being sent to do things to her in her life. And uh, like, you know, with Daniel, he prayed about captivity being ended, and then the angels are sent flying around the place to uh, do things to the king of Persia, to his heart, and all, all, all this, to enable the decree to be made to let the Jews go back. And uh, it was like that, that, that uh, through angelic coincidence, she came into contact with two of our brethren here in, in this, uh, this city, and had to spend a day with them. And they talked to her about the gospel and sort of prodded her along. And it all just came together. And those angels were sent out. Because I prayed. And I remember one of those prayers was in a coffee shop in the center of Riga, where I had gone. It's just there off Terbatasiela, just going away from the city center on the right. And I had gone there to meet someone, to talk with them about the gospel, and they didn't pitch up. And I was a bit disappointed, so I sat in this uh, coffee shop and had a coffee on my own. And there over that coffee, I prayed for this woman. And I don't know why, but I remember that I really did believe in that prayer. And I can believe it, that the, the, you know, the hard-faced, secular uh, business person of today can come to faith. Now, that's a, a little thing for God. <clears throat> it was a little thing in my life. And there's bigger things. Well, I guess that's a pretty big thing in one sense. But you know what I'm saying? There's bigger things for all of us. And it comes down to being spiritually ambitious. Not asking for ourselves, but asking to see God's name glorified from the right motives, praying and believing in the right things, for his glory, and it will happen. Thank you.